0: It's really a pleasure to come back here, and it's a pleasure to see one of the real pioneers in the study of Babylonian sexuality in the audience, my old friend uh, Bob Biggs, whose uh, dissertation on Mesopotamian potency incantations was uh, published while I was uh, a student here at the OI, and he was a faculty member. I first got into the business of Mesopotamian sex here at the Oriental Institute. Um, The OI required of people studying philology, that is, texts, that they take a full year of uh, archaeology plus one uh, advanced semester uh, seminar in archaeology. And I took my uh, seminar from a very a distinguished elderly, meaning about 15 years younger than I am today, archaeologist, who uh, was a lovely person, a brilliant scholar, but spoke in a very soft monotone. And the seminar lasted for two and a half hours. And it was also in that uh, period of postprandial somnolence that some of us experience around two in the afternoon. And uh, I finally had to persuade him that I had a medical problem that required me to bring a pot of tea to every seminar and to drink it through the seminar. And that worked, but then we had to write a paper. And by that point, I was deep in my dissertation research and really didn't want to write a paper on on archeology. span But I remembered reading in the Encyclopedia of Assyriology in an old pre-war fascicle that those who know collections of Mesopotamian antiquities will realize that there's far more uh, pornographic material uh, there than has been published. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting at least to collect all the material that had been published? So I did. I I wrote what I thought was a very analytical and and interesting research paper, which I got back with a B- and a note from the elderly professor saying, I think uh, this was written tongue-in-cheek. But in fact, it turned out to be the basis for something I wrote five years later that was published in the Encyclopedia of Assyriology uh, and was not much different from my, my B minus tongue in cheek paper. And then uh, you know, about 20 years later, when gender and sexuality became all the rage in the academy, I returned to the topic and developed it uh, a little bit more with some publications. And but gradually now have been you know, my interest is waning, and uh, it was very nice to be asked to revisit it uh, uh, for all of you. Now, uh, is, is this we're having a little bit of focus problem, and the slide is a little bit out of focus anyway. But I hope you all can see, I don't think I really have to get into this much for this audience. But I just wanted to point out that that Mesopotamia, of course, is the land between the Tigris and Euphrates and surrounding regions. Sumer is to the south. Uh, The Sumerians invented writing in the centuries just before 3000 BC. Uh, Akkad, the kind of earliest center of Semitic-speaking Akkadians, is uh, to the north, just south of Baghdad and Assyria is in the, uh, in the north. And the Assyrians also uh, used Akkadian, but they had their own uh, special regional dialect. So if you think just in terms of uh, Sumerians are Shiites and Akkadians are Sunni and Assyrians are Kurds, it will help you to keep your uh, uh, geography in your head and unfortunately I can't see the sites I wanted to point out on this map from here Um, but uh, most of you know yes there's Nippur and uh, Uruk and Ur and I'll be showing some materials from Assur a lot of the written materials uh, come from Nineveh which I'm looking for here, Nineveh is right there. Um, and chronologically, we'll be uh, beginning uh, around, I think the earliest material I show is from around 2800. And the latest uh, material I will show is from uh, the Sasanian. Uh, or rather from the Parthians, uh, so around the turn of the era, around uh, 1 BC, uh, 1 AD. Now, for most Mesopotamians, sex was something, of course, uh, that took place within the context of marriage. Uh, This affectionate couple are from Nippur around 2400 B.C. And as Martha Roth has demonstrated, uh, Mesopotamian marriage customs followed the so-called Mediterranean pattern. That is, men were older, around 30 years old, and women were younger uh, in their mid to late teens so that a man's father uh, could likely be dead by the time he married, and the man was already the, uh, the head of the household. And the locus of sex was, of course, the marriage bed. And you can see that this molded clay plaque model bed is, is really three-dimensional. So you see the couple uh, embracing here on a, uh, if you look closely, you would see it's a reed mattress, which is uh, tightened, made tense by a uh, device at the foot of the bed here. And the bed actually has uh, legs on it. Uh, There are many of these molded clay uh, plaques from around... 16, 1700 BC that have been found, many of them in private houses. Leo Oppenheim always used to comment that this was the only art that most people could ever afford to own. Uh, We're not sure exactly uh, how it functioned. There are two possibilities. One is that it was uh, designed specifically as an erotic stimulus And the other possibility, of course, is that it was simply uh, apotropaic, designed to keep away uh, evil demons and bad things in general, like the Herms in Rome, which had erect uh, phalloi, but uh, did not have a particularly sexual uh, uh, meaning, but were just guardian figures, uh, the way Chinese sometimes uh, have demons at the doors of, of temples. Designed to keep uh, evil away. Now, uh, for a Mesopotamian woman, this was probably uh, the extent of her sexual experience. Uh, Mesopotamian men had more freedom and also uh, were occasionally uh, guilty of uh, sexual aggression. Now, how did a relationship like this begin. Uh, There are two types of sources that we have. Uh, One is literary, and one is legal. In literary sources, young love tends to be very romantic. So you can see, and and the paradigmatic young couple uh, is Inanna, the goddess of love and war, later Ishtar in Akkadian, and Dumuzi, her uh, uh, lover, and later her spouse. And we have two kinds of texts about them. We have the one kind of text that talks about their, their young love and courtship, and then we have another text that talks about their life after they were married. And the young love and courtship texts paint a much prettier picture. So you can see here that Inanna is saying, oh, that you would do all the sweet things to me. In the bedroom's honey-sweet corner, let us enjoy over and over your charms and sweetness. And then there is a a nice text that tells us about uh, Dumuzi trying to get Inanna to spend the evening with him. And she says, but what will I tell my parents? Uh, I can't do that. And so he tells her to say, my girlfriend was strolling with me in the square, to the playing of drum and flute she danced with me, and time went by. That is, uh, he's giving her an alibi so they can sneak off and be together. And there are some quite beautiful passages in these poems. Uh, this one, for instance, is probably the earliest literary representation of a woman's sexual pleasure. My, and this is Inanna speaking. My sweetheart brought me into his house. He lay me down on the honey-fragrant bed. And when my dear sweetheart had lain very close to me, one by one, making tongue one by one, as if dumb struck, I moved toward him. Trembling below, I pushed quietly to him. My sweetheart, my hand placed on his thigh. So did I pass the time with him there. So that is the fantasy. Uh, the reality is quite different. Uh, young girls did not have this freedom at all. They were expected to remain uh, virgins until marriage. And uh, this, uh, there was a kind of obsession with virginity that we see in many cu- cultures that is really a way that men control women's sexuality. So we have uh, a law from around 1200 BC in Assyria that deals with uh, the rape of a maiden, of, of a young woman, a young unmarried woman, the assumption being, again, that she has not had sexual relations. If a man forcibly seizes and rapes a maiden who has not had intercourse, the father of the maiden shall take the wife of the fornicator and hand her over to be raped so this is a little bit of talionic penalty what it has to do with the offense in our eyes is difficult to see Uh, the father shall give his daughter in marriage to the man who raped her and the rapist shall give triple the silver of the value of a maiden to her father So this is an offense not against the woman, but against the father of the woman. If the father doesn't want to, he shall receive triple the silver for the maiden, and shall give his daughter in marriage to whomever he likes. So again, it's not if the girl says, no, no, this guy just, you know, I don't want to marry him. No, it's if the father decides that it's not an appropriate match. Then the second uh, uh, exception is if a maiden willingly gives herself to a man. So the scene that we saw with Inanna that was portrayed in such a beautiful way in real life, uh, they shall have no claim to the man's wife because it's not rape. Uh, The fornicator shall pay triple the silver of the value of a maiden. That is, the father still gets recompensed and the father shall treat his daughter as he likes so the father can do whatever he wants uh, with his daughter and let me say by the way that everything i quote from legal texts of course comes from uh, martha roth's wonderful uh, collection of mesopotamian uh... laws so there's one sort of saving grace to these kinds of laws and that is is it does set up a situation in which a couple could conceivably elope that is they if if you were really in love with a girl and she was in love with you she could you could run off with her and then the father would be in this position of uh, possibly letting you marry her if you paid him uh, adequate compensation but of course there is always the risk that that uh this wouldn't be the case and the girl could be punished in a quite uh terrible way so the the possibilities of sex outside of marriage are number one uh rape which we've just seen in the case of a virgin and we'll see uh, soon in the case of a married woman. There was adultery, not to be recommended, and we'll see that adultery is not a crime that, how can I put this? Adultery is a crime against the husband of the married woman who is involved in the adulterous act so a man can be guilty of that crime if he sleeps with another man's wife but the a woman's husband can sleep with any woman he chooses who is available and that's a very small group of women uh, without incurring any penalty or it being considered uh, uh, something that should not be done there is prostitution and of course in every society where there is a lot of sexual repression, there is also a lot of prostitution. Uh, There was performance and ritual, something we know very little about. Uh, There were same-sex relationships and then there were relationships with animals. Now, there are also literary texts about rape and Interestingly, the literary texts about rape are uh, very, uh, have very little to do with uh, actual real-life situations. There is a text about Enlil, the chief of the Mesopotamian pantheon, and Ninlil, his future wife, set at a time when they are both very young, their adolescents and Ninlil's mother warns her not to go and bathe in the river because there's this god that's going to see her and attack her. And of course she immediately goes and bathes in the river and the god uh, Enlil approaches her and wants to make love to her and she pleads with him, as you can see, that she's really too young, she's too small, and in any case her parents will be very angry but uh, gods, being gods, Enlil uh, goes ahead, and he has sex with her, and uh, it's considered such a heinous crime that he is banished from the city of Nippur. And as he leaves the city of Nippur, uh, Ninlil, rather than you know being happy that he's gone says wait a minute I'm pregnant with his child I'd better follow behind him and she follows him and he disguises himself three times as somebody else and has sex with her three more times and uh... the end of the text is not preserved but we know from the rest of the text from the rest of Mesopotamian uh, uh... uh... mythology and religion that they go on to be the reigning god and his consort of the entire Mesopotamian pantheon. And four gods are uh, conceived uh, in those three uh, or four uh, sexual acts uh, committed by Enlil. So this ends up all right. There's another rape, however, in Mesopotamian literature that doesn't uh, end up as well. Uh, a rather unsuccessful gardener named Shukale Tuda sees Inanna, the great goddess of love and war, resting in a garden next to his under a tree and sleeping. And he steals over to uh, that other garden and rapes her or actually she's sleeping through the whole thing and he it's, it's literature, it's literature so we have to suspend disbelief a little bit he then comes back to his garden she wakes up and she looks down at herself and sees that she has been violated and decides that she has to punish the violator and she uh, looks for this shukhaletuda, this gardener who is hiding among the Sumerians and she can't find him and she brings various misfortunes on the land uh, as a result of this and finally uh, she goes to Enki, the god of wisdom and says you know, where is this guy and he uh, finally is persuaded to disclose her, the Shukaletuda's hiding place. She finds him by stretching across the sky like a rainbow. And remember that the uh, Inanna is Venus, and Venus is only at, within a certain number of degrees of the horizon every night, uh, or every morning, depending on when uh, uh, Venus is visible. But Venus is never up there like Jupiter or Saturn might be. So the idea is, is that by turning into a rainbow, she can actually see down into the land. She's not looking over this way. And she finds him, and he pleads for his life, and she says, "You know, just you know, give it up, you're going to die, but it's OK because f- forever and ever people will be singing the song about." Uh, Shukale Tuda and how he raped Inanna and and she kills him so (laughs) so if you're you know it's this is something you can get away with if you're a god but if you're a a mortal and you uh, do it to a god it doesn't end as well now if we turn to another kind of extramarital sex adultery we see from the Code of Hammurabi, if a man's wife should be seized lying with another male, they shall bind them and cast them into the water. So this is the assumption, of course, is this is a voluntary adultery on her part. If the wife's master allows his wife to live, then the king shall allow his subject to live. And this was a very important principle, is that the husband can't punish the... Uh, the male without punishing his wife as well and the punishment has to be equivalent so he couldn't say well you know it's my kid's mother I'm gonna forgive her but I'm gonna you know murder this guy because he did this uh, to her uh, and to me so it is again a crime against the husband just as rape was a crime against the girl's father and a married woman can never charge her husband uh, with adultery. Now, there's a very interesting cylinder seal that many people, including myself, take to illustrate a man catching his wife, sleeping with another man, and it looks, it's very hard to tell from the impression, it's not an actual seal, it's a sealing, uh, but it looks as if uh, he is about to do something uh, nasty to her uh, as a result but this is, um, this is not certain. Now in Assyria they also had uh, laws about adultery but the Assyrian laws are generally well what we would call more barbaric, they're certainly more talionic uh... Then babylonian law even though babylonian law tends to be rather talionic so in assyrian law if a man forcibly rapes a married woman they shall kill the man there's no punishment for the woman well this is this is you know makes sense to us if a man fornicates with a married woman knowing she's married the man is punished as the husband wishes his wife to be punished so this is sort of like Hammurabi, that is, if it's consensual adultery, the man has to punish his wife in an equivalent way as he wishes the the, the man who has slept with her to be punished. And then finally, if a man fornicates with a married woman not knowing she's married the man goes free and the husband can punish his wife as he wishes so again the idea is that you cannot sleep with another man's wife if you know that the woman is married even if she seduces you or tries to seduce you you are bound not to not to sleep with her, not to violate her husband's rights. Prostitution uh, was institutional in Mesopotamia. Uh, As I mentioned before, in most societies where men marry late and have very uh, few opportunities uh, for sexual release, Uh, prostitution is uh, something that is considered a normal if not uh, uh, well looked upon uh... part of the social scene in mesopotamia prostitution was connected not surprisingly with taverns and so we have from the same period that we had those beds that look like marital coupling uh... we have a large number of, again, molded clay plaques that depict uh, a couple having intercourse as the woman drinks from a, uh, through a long drinking tube from what must be a, uh, a jar of beer. Although I have to say <laughs> when, and, and it's, the idea isn't that, isn't that women you know, that, th- that this is actually how it happened. I mean, the idea is that the, the drinking is a way of indicating that this is a scene from a tavern or a place of prostitution. Uh, I once uh, showed this in an undergraduate class, uh, I think in the 70s or 80s, and one student raised her hand and said, well, maybe she's throwing up. <laughs> Now, some of these are very odd. Uh, In in this one, it's hard to tell whether she's patting him on the head or pushing him away. And then we have another one where the man is holding a a drinking vessel. And it looks like he's either bopping her on the head or toasting to his his good fortune, even uh, if we Go south of Sumer of Mesopotamia into the Persian Gulf. Uh, some Persian Gulf seals from around the same time have a similar scene. Uh, there is a a whoops sorry, a let's get that back. A man down here, the woman is on top of him and drinking you know, just like these two women uh, her. Her beverage, and then this. Now, these plaques are all from the middle of the second millennium BC. So let's say 1600, 1700. This motif, and I would assume the idea of the connection between sex and alcohol, and I would say probably sex and taverns, uh, persists so that a Persepolis fortification tablet seal, sealing. Uh, that Matt Stolper pointed out to me has a very similar scene. It's very hard to see, but the man is here, and the woman is here, and he, it looks like he, whoops, he is holding a cup in his hand there. So you have the same association of alcohol and sexuality. And then finally, a Parthian seal. These are cone-shaped seals. So on the, the bottom part of the cone, you have this nice uh, military scene. But on the side of the cone, you have, again, a woman drinking and a man uh, penetrating her uh, from behind. So you have about uh, 1,800 years of this uh, motif uh, being transmitted now people uh, all of you who are familiar with the Gilgamesh epic know the central role that prostitution plays in that story you remember that Gilgamesh is a young strong king who is deflowering all the brides and wearing the men out with uh, work and athletic activity and the people cry out to the gods for relief and the gods uh, create a kind of counterpart to Gilgamesh a wild man uh, Enkidu who is born in the uh, wilderness and lives with the animals and just uh, the illustrations of course are from a children's story Um, I think the one that you can buy at the bookstore here. And uh, just ignore the horns on Enkidu's head. Enkidu did not have horns. Sort of treat it like Michelangelo's Moses. Um, And uh, one day a a trapper discovers that somebody has been springing all the traps and letting the animals uh, free. And he goes and he complains uh, to Gilgamesh in Uruk and Gilgamesh says, well, we will send out a beautiful prostitute to seduce this, uh, this wild man, and that will uh, stop him from, uh, from releasing the animals from your traps because he'll discover his sexuality and his humanity, and he'll know that uh, he should change sides. And so this happens, and uh, here you see uh, the children's version of the meeting of Enkidu and the Prostitute. And here you see a, uh, a modern artist's uh, version for adults of, of the same meeting. It's really uh, uh, the sexiest passage in all of Mesopotamian literature. And when in the 1950s, the University of Chicago published Alexander Heidel's translation of the Gilgamesh Epic, this passage was rendered in Latin. (laughs) Now, so she brings Enkidu back to town. Uh, He challenges Gilgamesh. They have a fight at the end of which they embrace each other and recognize that one is the equivalent of the other, and they become best friends and they decide to go on an adventure to the cedar forest where they kill the guardian of the forest, cut off his head and uh, bring it back to Babylonia to the temple of Enlil and the gods are very upset although it's not clear to some of us why the gods are upset because when they went to the cedar forest they were under the protection of the sun god so the gods should have known It's again, it's literature, so we don't worry about that. And um, the gods decide that one of them has to die and it will be Enkidu. And Enkidu uh, learns of his fate in a dream and then he gets sicker and sicker. And finally, uh, he thinks that this is all the fault of the prostitute who uh, put an end to his idyllic life with his animal buddies. And he curses her and says, a household to delight in you shall not acquire, never to reside in the midst of a family. In the young women's chamber you shall not sit. That is, you won't sit with the young uh, uh, marriageable women. Uh, Your finest garment the ground shall defile. Your festive gown the drunkard shall stain with dirt. Things of beauty you shall never acquire. No table for a banquet shall be laid in your house. The bed you delight in shall be a miserable bench. The junction of highways shall be where you sit, a field of ruins where you stand. Thorn and briar shall skin your feet. Drunk and sober shall strike your cheek." So this is a pretty sad but realistic picture of a, a kind of prostitute who's really down and out and you know, living a very uh, marginal life. But then, um, the sun god says, but wait a minute. Uh, if, it weren't, if it hadn't been for her, you would have never discovered the joys of friendship with Gilgamesh. You would have never had these wonderful adventures. You would have never known what it was to be human. And so, then he relents, and he uh, can't really take back the curse, but he blesses her. And he says, my mouth that cursed you shall bless you as well. Governors shall love you and noblemen too. At one league off, men shall slap their thighs. At two leagues off, they shall shake out their hair. No soldier shall be slow to drop his belt for you. Obsidian he shall give you, lapis and gold. Earrings and jewelry shall be what he gives you. Ishtar, the ablest of gods, shall gain you entrance to the man whose home is established and wealth heaped high. For you, his wife shall be deserted, though mother of seven. So, this too is a, a realistic picture in, in cultures where prostitution is institutionalized, that there are courtesans, there are the, the prostitutes who are the uh, companions of wealthy men, and at least for a while, they live quite luxurious lives. So we have the two sides of prostitution then, the street whore and the courtesan, um, with an acknowledgement that we sometimes also find in legal texts of the dangers to marriage that a prostitute can pose. Now the, the patroness of prostitutes was Inanna Ishtar, who is portrayed in some texts as an insatiable uh, uh, lover. And you can remember that Gilgamesh, when she proposes to Gilgamesh in the Gilgamesh epic, uh, Gilgamesh rejects her by reciting the long list of her lovers and what harm befell them as a result of succumbing to her uh, propositions. There is another text that is even more revealing, uh, a a text about Ishtar as a prostitute, where she says, since I'm ready to give you all what you want, get all the young men of your city together, let's go to the shade of the wall. Seven for her midriff, seven for her loins, 60 then 60 satisfy themselves in turn upon her nakedness. The young men have tired. Ishtar never tires. Put it to my lovely vulva, fellows. As the girl demanded, the young men heeded, gave her what she asked for." So you can't imagine a more blatant description of uh, uh, active female sexuality than this. And of course, it also reveals exactly what men feared. In women's sexuality, uh, a kind of um, insatiability uh, that was very different from uh, male sexuality, which at least intermittently uh, uh, subsides. <laughs> so, what other what other extramarital sexual situations might an ancient Mesopotamian encounter. One would be related to prostitution and that is musicians. We have lots of naked musicians. Men as you can see and women especially, all of those naked women uh, are holding uh, frame drums suggesting that they are uh... musicians we have men, naked men and women uh... together uh... making uh... music you see the man is holding a a lute and the woman a frame drum and that same scene continues uh... in uh... assyria from about 1400, 1300 bc These are drawings and you'll see an original in a little bit of lead plaques that were probably affixed to furniture as kind of decorative pieces. And so here you see also the man with the lute with a nude woman and we can't really tell what's going on here. This is probably uh, the leg of a third person. So there's some kind of, of performance or whatever uh, being imagined by the artist, we're not sure, again, whether uh, this happened in real life, but it seems, and we know from, um, we know from texts that uh, musicians were part of harems. Uh, King Zimri Lim of Mari in about uh, uh, 1750 uh, B.C. Uh, is off on campaign and he writes back to his wife saying you know i'm sending you the captured women from such and such a city pick out the prettiest ones and have them taught to sing and put the others to work in the textile mill and the next day he writes and he says "Um, forget what i wrote yesterday when i return home i will pick out the girls who are to be taught how to sing so, so we, we know that there was some, uh, and from other cultures as well, that there was some uh, um, nexus of, of performance, musical performance and uh, sexual availability. So we've seen a lot of illustrations now. Uh, we have some idea of how the Mesopotamians uh, engaged in sexual activity. And just to go over uh, these uh, again, uh, we have a lot of pictures of people having intercourse on beds. What's funny about some of them, and especially this one, is that even though it's portrayed on a bed, and you can see the the reed mattress, and you can see the tension, uh, the ropes being used to to make the mattress uh, taut. it really looks like they're standing up. I mean, it looks like his feet are on the ground and he's uh, holding her up around him. It's, it's very odd, and it could just be because it would be very much more difficult to show a couple having intercourse when they were both prone or supine prone on the bed. But um, like so many things, uh, this is a little bit mysterious. One of the big problems with all of the illustrations I'm showing you is that very few sexually explicit Mesopotamian uh, uh, illustrations have any relationship to anything we know from the textual record. We know a lot from the textual record; we see a lot in the artifactual record, but they don't overlap entirely. They're they're sort of um, I call them incongruent corpora, they only overlap slightly, but not, uh, not nearly enough to reveal the secrets of the images. Now from around uh, 2800 BC at Tepe Gawra, we see a, a couple having intercourse uh, from the rear as well as a couple sitting on a bed, having seated intercourse. The musicians that we saw a while ago on a clay plaque are having a very interesting time. Uh, don't try this at home. <laughs> this is, this is the, the, famous, the famous back-to-back position. <laughs> and, and we can only hope that, that the artist uh, was expressing a kind of sense of humor here and, and not just anatomical ignorance. And then finally, uh, um, the the woman uh, having pleasure without uh, having to bother with a partner. There are several of these images where you simply have a a disembodied phallus uh, that is being uh, mounted by a woman. Now, you all know that one of the most important aspects of Mesopotamian culture, the way they viewed the world, was that they thought that the gods gave us hints of what was in store for us. And it was our job to interpret these hints, uh, and there were people who were specially trained to do that, and uh, we have a huge, body of omen literature uh, there were two kinds of two categories of omens there are things that happen you know like a three birds flying in a circle over your head it's not something you have anything to do with and then there are omens that you uh, that you uh, provoke so you can uh, cut open a sheep and examine its liver or you can pour oil in a cup and uh, interpret the patterns that the oil makes or you can you know light incense and interpret the patterns of the smoke rising up so the omens that uh, about sexuality are in a huge collection uh, of the first kind of omen generally things that just happen although when you look at the sex omens you say to yourself well these are things people can control. You know, why, I mean, not always, but, but often. Uh, you know, how can this, you know, if you know that having sex in a certain way or a certain time is gonna bring you good fortune, you could do it then. Or if you know that certain kinds of sex lead to bad things, you might avoid it. Although we know from contemporary society that we don't always follow those uh, uh, intuitions. So the, um, the Mesopotamian sex omens um, talk a lot about kinds of positions and ways that people have sex. They're generally from a male perspective. And generally, as you can see, that if a, a woman is showing any agency, it's bad. So uh, <laughs> there are actually some positive ones, but none of these <laughs> none, none none of these are positive, positive. And, and and they do reflect a, a certain kind of prudery and a certain uh, uh, sense that really uh, women should just lie there and 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 be vessels. Then um, there is a question of ritual sex. Now, we all know about the sacred marriage, where supposedly in the uh, early second millennium BC, the king would have uh, sexual intercourse with the goddess Inanna. How this was arranged is very a matter of contention. Uh, I've come to think that it's all metaphor and didn't actually happen but this is something i've come to only in recent years and might have more to do with you know where i'm at rather than where they were at Um, But so and and then we have uh... from the first millennium we have some really uh, uh... disgusting sounding rituals just awful rituals misogynistic and and uh, uh, really really yucky where where uh, it, it could be that sexual acts are being portrayed but again there's no way of knowing from the textual material we have but And of course, from entirely different periods, so whether it has anything to do with it or not, we do have illustrations of sexual acts that seem to be ritual or at least public. That is not two people on a bed or two people in a tavern. But we have, for instance, from the early third millennium, 27, 2800, these ceilings from Ur. Now you can see that that here you have uh, people having sex, but what's this woman doing? She's doing something with the woman who is the partner of this man. Someone is playing a harp here, someone is possibly mixing a beverage or or food. Uh, There's another guy, it's not the same as this one, who is probably doing something with someone in front of him. Uh, Here you have a couple having sex here, a couple having sex here, and again uh, another woman, a third woman, uh, playing with the hair or headdress of the female partner. And here you have the uh, drinking vessels, possibly. Uh, And then here we have these uh, uh, ring poles, which are always associated with sacred precincts. And on top of uh, this sacred scene, we have a scene of uh, supine prone sexual intercourse. So it certainly does not look like uh, it does not look like this is just sex uh, going on in the privacy of a home or even in a brothel. But we just don't have the textual sources to illustrate this. Um, we're getting near the end uh as in uh, ah I'm sorry, so here is another scene with a third person, and yet another, uh, and then finally one of those assyrian lead plaques where you can see uh, here uh, you have a uh, a woman with a uh, man behind her, a man in front of her, and uh probably there's, uh, there were other figures involved also. And what looks like an altar, but who knows what it is, it looks it's an odd brick structure. Again, we have no idea uh, what it means. Uh, sexual dysfunction. Just as in modern times Mesopotamian men uh, sometimes failed to uh, uh, get aroused at a critical moment and uh, as i mentioned uh, at the beginning uh, when i was a student here bob biggs was publishing his dissertation on just such situations uh, which consisted of a series of incantations and rituals to resolve the problem and what's very interesting is that they're very much like modern sex therapy the woman talks dirty to the man and then she manipulates his penis, rubs it with oil or, or whatever. And then finally, uh, we have a, uh, the question of homosexuality. Sex between men uh, is uh, very different in the law than it is in the Omen literature. In the law, if a man has intercourse with his comrade, and they prove the charges against him and find him guilty they shall sodomize him and castrate him now this doesn't seem to make sense to us unless we understand that having having intercourse with penetrating another male citizen was a a, an insult to the citizenry Uh, just as in ancient greece uh... they could they could have sex with boys but they could not have sex with citizens who were their equal and equal in age. So this rather harsh penalty, which includes gang rape of the guy who did it, uh, makes sense if, I mean, we don't like it, but we can understand it if we look at it in that sense. But in the omens, it says that if a man has anal sex with his social equal, that man will be foremost among his brothers and his colleagues. Um, You know, my interpretation was always that this was humorous. That is, nobody would want uh, him to walk behind them, so he would get to be in front. Um, But uh, the real expert on Mesopotamian sexuality, uh, Anne Guinan, who is editing all of these obens, uh... thinks it's different that often in omens for instance if you sleep with another man's wife which in the law is not a good thing in the omens it says that you will become rich because by taking another man's wife you're taking you know more things that aren't yours so you're accumulating so i think she interprets it uh, in that way rather than as humor and finally it was long thought that there was no mention of Female homosexuality in Mesopotamian uh, literature. And, you know, people, scholars would say, well, it didn't matter to them. You know, women could do what they want. But it just turns out that it wasn't in the omens that dealt with heterosexual and male homosexual uh, uh, relations, but it was in a tablet that dealt with unnatural couplings. So, The tablet starts, if a woman has intercourse with a woman, there will be hostilities in the land. If a donkey has intercourse with a bull, there will be difficulties in the land. If a man has intercourse with a male sheep, he will experience evil. If a man has intercourse with a horse, he will experience illness. If a dog has intercourse with a woman, God will consume the land. If a pig has intercourse with a woman, the city will fall. If a pig has intercourse with a dog, the people will drive out the ruler of the city. So the, the idea then is that whereas I think male homosexuality was something that was more, let's say, in the consciousness of, after all, the men who composed these texts, uh, uh, female homosexuality was just considered, you know, this oddity, you know, like a, a, a donkey. Uh, having intercourse with a sheep or something and not anything that either threatened society or had some great import. Now all of you recognize, this is our last slide, Uh, all of you recognize this as uh, Edwin Long's uh, 1875 painting (coughs) of the Babylonian marriage market. Uh, Herodotus, remember, tells the story that in Babylonia once a year, all the marriageable women were brought together and were auctioned off. And the, uh, the, the money that was raised by auctioning the most beautiful women was then used to give a dowry uh, to the least desirable women. And Herodotus really admired, one of the few things he admired about the Babylonians was this practice. Um, and, if you're interested in such things, you will notice this is 1875, so after the British had excavated the palaces of Assyria, and you'll notice that this is extremely uh, authentic uh, decor that you have uh, on the walls, and a few a few of the the headdresses. Although this looks like a horned crown, which would be a god who doesn't really belong there, but but this was a. a Uh, This is one of my favorite uh, uh, paintings of this type. Uh, Herodotus had some completely wrong or distorted ideas about Babylonian sexuality, which really was not much different from the Greeks or our own until quite recently. Number one, there was patriarchal control of women's sexuality. Daughters and wives were under the authority of fathers and husbands. Two, there was a double standard. Men's sexuality was limited only by opportunity, whereas women's sexuality was uh, severely circumscribed. Three, there was a stigmatization of homosexuality between adult male citizens. Four, prostitution was a major sexual outlet for men. And five, there was uh, sexual access to slaves. So uh, really, I think if Herodotus had ever actually gone to Babylon, he probably would have recognized it as not much different in those respects than Athens. Thank you very much.